interestingly the goddess is not just the mother in in this culture the goddess does not represent just the mother there is one avatar of the goddess which is the form of the mother but in the most uh, prominent avatar she's a warrior so it's her it's her power her strength her fury her violence which is actually what we pray to during most festivals and during most of the religious ceremonies the avatar that you pray to is the goddess durga and she she has eight arms you know and she's holding weapons of war she is in, invoked every time you go for any you know big event or a war or anything you know so her strength her sense of justice is what is invoked and the the energy of the goddess the feminine energy actually is not passive it's extremely potent prophecies have foretold and wisdom keepers all know that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world in this podcast we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity so we can emerge as leaders creating a new story on earth i'm lauren walsh and i'm shayna connors with humble hearts and open minds we will converse with spiritual teachers historians psychologists revolutionaries leaders and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hey there friends, welcome to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. This is Lauren here, and we have an awesome episode for you today. But before we begin, I would like to share that this is so fun for us. We want to keep going. We want to keep doing these episodes. And in order for us to do so, we need to continue gaining reviews. So if some of you are listening and haven't left us a review, could you put this on pause and go ahead and write us a little something or give us four or five stars, something like this, because this helps us keep going. This helps us continue to have more episodes and attract more guests. So if you would like to help us, if these episodes have been of value to you, then we would really appreciate a review. And I have to admit, I'm being kind of hypocritical because I've never really been a review person, but I vow to you and all the women listening and all the people listening that I am now going to be a review person because it's helpful because people put energy into things. So I now take the vow that things I love, I will review. And I don't need to leave negative reviews because that's just, just go on your merry way. Anyway, thank you for bearing with me there. And I would like to now talk about our wonderful guest. Today, I interview Ekta Kapoor and she's a woman from India who has had an incredible life. Her story is so inspiring, and so we speak a lot about her story today. She is the founder and editor of Ishi, a digital media platform based in India and Canada that amplifies women's voices and stories about our shared humanity. 
after a long career as an award-winning lifestyle and fashion journalist. She is now focused on gender equality, social justice, and peace building through her writing and initiatives. She is the founding member of the South Asia Peace Action Network and has mentored various workshops for women at the To Do School, We Empower Asia, UN Women, among many others. Her platform, Ishi, hosts annual summits led by women with the aim of bridging divides in South Asia and building peace and solidarity within that region. I cannot wait for you to experience just the raw, natural beauty and heart and care and vivacious energy of this beautiful soul. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to the time of the feminine, Ekta. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Lauren, for having me. So I want to begin with a conversation that you and I had last time we spoke. You were sharing a little bit about your life in India and how you came to be the person you are and do the work you do. Could you retell that for our community? Yes, sure. So I was... uh I was brought up in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, which is in the Middle East, and uh, it's a traditional society. And since I was uh, part of a family that was relatively conservative uh, in their value systems, I was brought up to believe that a woman's place is at home and uh, she has no other job except to, you know, get married, have children, look after a home. And uh, that was that was sort of the conditioning, uh, so much so that uh, when I was asked to, uh, you know, come to India to, uh, to study, to do my bachelor's. Uh, I remember being in a college uh, where most of the girls were also conditioned to believe that, you know, college is just one more tick mark on your resume, uh, matrimonial resume, and eventually you have to get married. And, uh, you know, well, that's what happened with me as well. I, I was married just soon after I finished college. And uh, the next 10 years of my life, I, I, I call them uh, the dark years of my life, though they are responsible for a lot of growth, a lot of spiritual growth. Uh, I went through a difficult patch and uh, eventually at the age of 30, I found Buddhism. Uh, by then I was a mother of two and uh, I got my first full-time job in a, you know, in a publishing house. And that's when for the first time, I realized that I'm more than a wife and a mother and there is something in me that is not given to me by somebody but it's already in me and it's it's my identity it's my uh, it's my purpose it's my calling and uh, so sort of everything sort of happened at the same time at the age of 30 I found my spiritual practice uh, within a few months uh, my marriage fell apart I walked out and uh, I got, uh, you know, I got a job in uh, in Marie Claire, India, which was just launching in India at the time. It was a very big opportunity for me, uh, and someone who was uh, a very docile, um, you know, somebody who was very frightened to even step out of home at one point. Uh, here I was. I was traveling around the world. I was meeting with celebrities, and I was interacting with, you know, CEOs of companies and. Uh, it was a really magical period. The next five years of my life were really, really magical. And, and then the growth continued. I, I grew very quickly in my career. And uh, I also met my partner. Uh, and eventually, uh, I had a second marriage. And uh, soon after that, I decided to launch my own magazine for women. 
something that inspires women something that uh, you know that helps women see that they're goddesses uh, so for me that was the purpose of why i started ishi that's the platform it's a digital magazine and of course we've gone through a lot of changes in the past couple of years because of the because of the pandemic we've become a solely digital platform but now we've also gone into peace building so we we've held two uh, summits global summits so far in which we get women from south asia together to talk about peace in the region and to use uh, feminine power and feminine energy uh, for a good cause to drive uh, you know to drive peace and less hate you know there's so much emphasis on negative news and there's so much emphasis on uh, warmongering and you know the people who are spreading lies and who are spreading uh, hateful sort of emotions are the ones who get the maximum media coverage unfortunately so i'm trying to create an alternative uh, space where we can use women's voices to talk about inclusivity about diversity about love about leading from the heart uh, so that is my purpose and that's what i'm doing right now mm. so i want to go backwards a little bit to when you found your spiritual path when you found buddhism when you found buddhism and then your relationship with your first husband started to crumble do you think it was because you started to have spiritual practice? And if so, how do you think that changed everything? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I call that phase the opening of the eyes because I started seeing myself truly for the first time. I started seeing that I'm not in the right place. This is not the life that I'm meant to live. And, you know, if I continue in that life, uh, that I could only see destruction ahead. So... There was a certain survival instinct. I try to figure it out whether it's survival instinct or it's a higher calling or it's a higher wisdom that's guiding you. Maybe it's a mix of all of that. Maybe our survival instinct is born of a higher calling because, you know, it's protecting us. It's guiding us in the right direction. So I think I was guided by that principle at that point. And you know, it's interesting that I had tried to leave my husband a couple of times earlier, but because of social factors, I was always forced to go back. But this time, this time, I think it was like, uh, it was like the goddess energy because I was so certain and I just, you know, I was so, uh, I had that courage to just stand up to my own family and to say, look, this time I'm not going back. So... I think that wouldn't have come if I hadn't been in a spiritual practice that helped me to touch the core of me and to touch the power within me uh, and also the protective energy within me because I was protecting my children mm -hmm. and I wanted to get them out of that environment. So for me, it was a, a huge surge of a kind of a primal energy that I didn't know I had. And it came at a point when perhaps I was ready for it. You know, I had built up the physical and emotional structure within me to receive that kind of energy. And I was able to have that huge push to get myself out of that situation, even if it took the next seven years of, you know, fighting court battles and having a lot of uh, ugliness uh, in my life, you know, in terms of breaking apart a social system. Mm -hmm. And especially in a society where people don't accept these kind of things, it was a huge battle emotionally, legally, you know, physically. Uh, it was it was a very difficult uh, stage of my life and yet and yet when I look back at it I can just see the magic right. because I was propelled by something that was far bigger than I was and 
I mean, it was painful, but it was effortless. I understand. I do. I think that's beautiful. And I'm, I would love to just kind of paint a picture of the culture at that time in India. You've already mentioned that even going to college for women was just like another notch on the matrimony resume, you know, something to yeah. make you more of a, a good candidate good for a wife, yeah. being a wife, right? Yeah. And so I want to just understand like your awakening and then your shift to leaving him and going through all of that scrutiny and then getting a job at Marie Claire, which is epic. Like what was happening culturally around you at that time? And then what was happening within you during that time as well? Yes. So in those days, in my family, at least it wasn't divorce was still a taboo word. And, you know, till today, only 1% of people really get divorced in India. So it's not because people are in happy marriages, but it's because there aren't any options. Uh, and leaving a marriage is not much of an option for most people. And uh, it's only because I had a job that uh, I got that at least I thought, okay, I can take care of myself financially. So though the job wasn't wasn't paying me as much as I, I was married to a very wealthy man. So the job wasn't really paying me what I would have uh, so-called earned uh, while continuing to stay in the marriage. But I chose poverty, actually. Uh, I chose to, uh, you know, just do it on my own, uh, even if I didn't have too much for a while. And... Um, it was, so it was difficult, um, you know, I was probably the first person in my family to get divorced and since then the next generation, my nieces and nephews have gone through it. So the stigma has, is, not, is not there anymore, but um, you know, in, at that time it was and it was a very, very big deal, not just for me, but uh, for everybody around me, you know, my, my parents, my sibling and you know, so it, it's, a, it's a very big deal in a, in a society like that. And, but what I learned is that it's easier to face such kind of social stigma when you're honest. So the more you try to hide it and the more you try to say, make excuses for it, or, you know, I'm going to go back or, you know, I'm, I'm just separated temporarily or try to make excuses, which is probably what I'd been trying to do the first couple of times, then it doesn't work. But because this time I had that kind of power of spirit, I was able to just say yes, you know, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't working out and I needed to leave. And, you know, perhaps uh, to Western audiences, it's not such, you know, women have been doing it now for a few decades in, in the West and they're able to claim their space and they're able to claim their freedom and uh, their res respect and dignity and say that it's not working for me. But for an Indian woman to say it's not working for me is a pretty big deal because uh, in our society, women are not supposed to be uh, individuals they are supposed to be part of the system part of the community and their job is to keep the system going and to keep the traditions going so for a woman to stand up and say this is not working for me individually is like you know you've just shattered the whole system so it's a uh, you know people look at you strangely people think of you as bad luck or they don't call you home but then with me what happened is that when my family extended family realized that you know, I was honest about it. It wasn't working for me. It was a bad situation and I'm struggling and my children are struggling. We're going through, you know, those changes. We're going through that, that internal and, um, you know, financial difficulties. I think people realize that I'm just human after all. And, uh, you know, their humanity emerged as well. And my family was really supportive after that point. And my extended family as well, after a point, they just 
you know all of them embraced me and it was they they accepted that okay fine you know okay we we love you and having your life and having you healthy is more important uh, to us you know so i think they also came to that realization and it took some time it it took a few years i think my my children must have probably gone through a lot um but uh, but interestingly it was uh, you know for my children my my remarriage was probably more difficult uh, than even my separation because uh, you know i was always with my children like in the sense uh, even in my first marriage i was almost like a single mother and when i was a single mother then i was always there with my children so they kind of got used to having mom to themselves like 100% uh-huh. so yeah. when a new man came in my life you know then they had to kind of share me so <laughs> that was probably more difficult for them uh, than those years yeah. But yeah, so there was that double, you know, getting introducing a new man in the life was another <laughs> another challenge. Right. So let's let's go to your work life. So you begin working in, in Marie Claire. What were you doing, and how? What did you learn from that experience that led you to Ishi and creating yeah. Ishi? Yeah. So I so Marie Claire was my first uh, media media opportunity that I had. Before that, I was working with Penguin Books, and uh, but I wanted to work. I wanted to be an editor. I wanted to be a journalist. And uh, for me, uh, you know, there was this section in the magazine in Marie Claire, which I think is still there in the international edition, uh, which is called Real People. And that I used to find that to be really funny because everybody's a real person, right? But that was the section of the magazine where we didn't feature celebrities. We featured so you know quote unquote ordinary women but we would style them nicely we would shoot them we would you know do a kind of a story around them for instance four women with long distance relationships and we talk to them about it and we you know we do a shoot around it and stuff so somehow that was always the part of the magazine that i loved the most where we were not putting the highlight on celebrities but on regular women and uh, uh, you know so that 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 part of it always stayed with me that women have so many stories and there's there's so much i mean i would find them even more interesting than uh, the stories of the celebrities which are so uh, you know we've heard them so many times and there's nothing more to say now you know but but with with all these stories i would just learn something new every time i met these women so when i got the opportunity to start men, so many years uh, went by I, for 15 years i was in the fashion space in india I worked with uh, after Marie Claire I worked with a, a group of magazines where I was heading um, you know a, a luxury magazine a women's magazine and a a wedding magazine and um, yeah so I worked with um, after Marie Claire I worked with Harper's Bazaar Bride and I also worked with a group of publications so I headed a, a group of three magazines one was a luxury magazine one was a wedding magazine one was a women's magazine so for 15 years i had that experience of really you know traveling around the world and having a very a very glamorous lifestyle you could say uh, in which i really met uh, you know the cream of society and i got to interact with a lot of uh, senior people and then you know after after a point somehow i got disillusioned with the system because by that time we had the we had the internet and i was heading a website a fashion website and i realized that we were not really what we were doing was not it was not empowering women you know it was making them feel worse about themselves the emphasis on celebrities the emphasis on photoshopping images you know the emphasis on the woman's body over her mind and spirit for me i found that very limiting and i felt that that's not my purpose and i I no longer wanted to put my name on those kind of stories that I was doing. 
so eventually i i got disillusioned with that and i decided to start my own publication my um, my husband inspired me to just do it and in fact i i asked him you know how how do i start a, my own magazine i'm just one person and he said well just start it and see how it goes you know and i started it and it went pretty well i mean i uh, i managed to achieve what i really wanted to do which is put the spotlight on regular women you know everybody is a real person uh, and everybody has a real story and uh, our you know the our the people on the cover they were scientists they were doctors they were singers they were dancers they were not people who were like movie stars uh, you know they were authors uh, uh, you know they were feminists activists uh, there was a politician so really we had like a wide range of people of women who were doing interesting things and doing amazing things and for me putting the spotlight on these women was what i felt my life's purpose is mm-hmm. and it wasn't even just women who were working i would have stories of students a 13 year old student for instance uh, sharing her views uh, you know on why in indian society children are considered like lesser beings uh, and she only realized it when she left india and went to the us and when she's standing in a queue for uh, some fast food the the person at the cashier said yes young lady how can i help you and gave her equal importance that she was giving her parent and when she came back to india she realized that nobody's ever done that to her in india in india children are just sort of ignored you know the attention is on the adult um so small things like that you know so i brought out these perspectives of women and girls uh you know sharing their points of view which they could never share otherwise in a media platform because these would be considered you know too small or too women's issues or you know uh they would be considered unimportant right. but for me they're important right you know there's so much power in story all knowing yeah. our stories knowing our truth it's the fabric i think that that is missing actually is the the caring about the story of the individual to inform how we create the future. Yes. So thank you for your work that you do and for the journey that you've been on. And I want to shift now into talking about Indian culture at large and the paradox of the patriarchy there and as well as the goddess worship because my working theory based on so many women who I've studied with is that part of the reason why we are out of balance as a society is because we forgot about the great mother the 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 goddess equal to the masculine and so we should you know in theory respect men women and all in between with the same type of love and vigor yet we've valued masculine qualities above the feminine qualities and that's you know interesting because in india as you've said before from where i found you on the femq summit you said you know it, it is a goddess worshiping culture yet the way women are treated doesn't it doesn't translate so i want to hear about that from your experience and what you've studied there yeah and in fact the goddess worship culture in india is so ingrained that even before this podcast started i, I have a habit of uh, just uh, saying my my mantra to myself and i said jai mata di which is hail the goddess and i said it to myself and then i smiled because i was like you know that's the topic today and it it was just so unconscious so jai mata di is like such a common it's such a common mantra that you say before you embark on a new journey and it's it's such a part of our life 
and yet women the goddess in women uh, is not seen and it's not considered they're not even considered at the same human level forget goddess level you know in india uh, so that's that's a very complex um, it's a very uh, nuanced uh, kind of a hierarchy that we have here interestingly the goddess is not just the mother in in this culture the goddess does not represent just the mother there is one avatar of the goddess which is the form of the mother but in the most uh, prominent avatar she's a warrior mm-hmm. so it's her it's her power her strength her fury her violence which is actually what we pray to during most festivals and during most of the religious ceremonies the avatar that you pray to is the goddess durga and she she has eight arms you know and she's holding weapons of war uh, she is in, invoked every time you go for any you know big event or a war or anything you know so her strength her sense of justice is what is invoked and the the energy of the goddess the feminine energy actually is not passive it's extremely potent it's it, there's a lot of violence in it which is really <laughs> I like strange it when you say that. yeah <laughs> yeah because it's it's not equated with the docile you know it's not like the mother mary vision of her right. sitting passively with with the baby jesus right? right so that's that is what is projected by organized religion because i think it's organized religion is equal to patriarchy yeah uh, and and most of them i i mean i haven't explored all the religions in the world but whatever i have explored they do have this aspect of constantly projecting good womanhood with motherhood or you know being gentle and nurturing and kind but in in india in our in our uh, subconscious culture we understand that the goddess is a furious woman you you don't mess with her you know she is not somebody you take lightly you're supposed to be a little frightened about her you're supposed to follow uh, the right thing because not because you know as as a woman you're expected to be uh, motherly and gentle and caring but i think that is patriarchy i don't think that's the real religion that's not what the intention of the goddess is supposed to be the goddess is shakti shakti is power power what drives the universe without without shakti shiva is nothing shiva is the male energy it's the consciousness the shiva can only plant the seed but the action has to be done by the shakti so it's like it's even like reproduction right the the man offers the seed but everything else happens inside the woman so the creation the nurturing you know the growth Uh, everything happens and even every month you have your menstruation even the destruction is happening inside the woman so really she is the birthplace of all action and everything hap- that is the woman's energy and to do that she needs to have a bit of everything she needs to have fire she needs to have water she needs to have earth you know she needs to have space so she has to have all the elements and without that she is not uh, she is not whole right. and that that is the problem in modern society that we've only highlighted one aspect of the mother or of the goddess which is her nurturing side her caring side her loving side which is which is true she is she's got an immense capacity for love but we've forgotten that hello 
she also has the capacity to slay she has the capacity to murder to kill and i have you know i have sensed this in my life because there have been moments when my children were threatened for instance right. and i realized that if you touch my daughter you touch a hair on her head i'm going to be the goddess kali and i'm going to slash her head off you know <laughs> so i've seen that anger that fury and that energy inside me yeah. and i know that that it exists in all of us totally it's just that it's completely suppressed over years of conditioning in women and they're told that you're supposed to be kind and gentle and nurturing and all these violent things are supposed to be left to the men oh my god it's the uh, but it's the women have equal and more power uh, and i think that is the reason why society has structured it in this way that they never get to know about it mm-hmm. dang that was that was amazing put you on a soapbox any day that was beautiful yeah the rage i feel what you're saying so deeply i'm very attuned to my rage it's like a maddening rage at times and yeah. i think i've said that numerous times on this podcast i think we always come back to this because i think it's really important for us to learn how to 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 use and integrate because otherwise i do think we cut people's heads off you know we 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 get so locked up and we feel so ashamed of our rage that we lash out uncontrollably at the wrong the wrong thing rather than use our rage as a way to create and destroy what's no longer working and then birth the new and so i'm curious about this like you know the structure of society and how we've all been taught that the feminine needs to be nurturing and docile and sweet and the way we operate even the way the capitalistic structure operates it's like we're in these boxes we're doing these tasks we're scheduled there's not space for that exploration and it makes me think about men because they're in the same system and their feminine aspect their inner goddess too is trapped so how do you think about that yeah so it's uh, if you look at the the way the corporate world works um, like we were discussing india is also learning the corporate system from the western world right. because uh, you know we are we're getting the multinational culture we're getting all those systems uh, interestingly the, the you know the best jobs for women in india are the government jobs because they are inclusive they have quotas for people with disabilities they have quotas for women they give you 3 uh, months uh, maternity leave uh, some states even give you a period leave every month you can take a day off if you have your period and uh, so i think the the government system is a lot more inclusive rather than the private systems which which don't have all these facilities and systems unless the ceo wants to you know be known in the newspapers and you know to have uh, something a pr stunt uh, about doing something for the women in the company in india only 10 or 12% of women in in organized workforce are actually women uh, they're mostly men and it's uh, not very easy for women to work in a corporate corporate or any environment in india actually it's you're not only you're a minority there aren't systems in place uh, keeping in mind uh, the female uh, need you know um, for instance um, you know i was uh, in one of uh, our conversations in one of ishi's uh, podcast we interviewed a lady who is a very famous journalist and she talked about how in the 70s when she started working 
she was part of that generation that wanted to prove that look we're equal to men and so even if she had her period or she wasn't feeling good she would report to work and she'd continue to push herself and you know she she you know it would be considered uh, you know let's not talk about women's problems and you know those uh, even if she had uh, was struggling with uh, some kind of child care issues she she wouldn't talk about it she would want to compete with the men today she says i look back and i think i did a disservice to the next generation of women because i should have stood up for my needs as a woman uh-huh. as the only woman in the office i should have stood up for my needs as a woman um and i think that's what is that is what is sorely lacking in most cultures yeah that we're not considering the needs of everybody we're only considering the needs of one kind of body one kind of uh, gender you know we're not considering the other people right. uh you know in the in the office where i worked we had two bathrooms for men and one bathroom for women because they said there are more men in the office than women but they didn't realize that when it's time to go home in the evening and women have to take one hour journeys in the bus they want to go to the loo first before they go home right and then there's a long queue outside the women's bathroom and you know they could have just opened up one of the bathrooms or the toilets of men just given it to the women but you know it's like not considering the needs of of the women that they need more space they need more time uh these kind of things are not considered even things like you know now it's well known right that office temperatures are kept colder for the male body women find it cold and they carry uh, sweaters or shawls to work uh which lowers their productivity you know and it gives them all kinds of physical problems to sit in the cold all day and so many other things the chairs the cars you know i was reading an article the other day that women have uh, die more from car accidents because seat belts are not made keeping the woman's body in mind um so you know things like that in every aspect we have made the male the default when it should actually i think it should be the female is the default because the woman's body is more inclusive you know if you make something that fits a woman's body it's more likely to fit all kinds of men's bodies as well not all men have a certain height or have a certain build you know you're just assuming they do but they don't and in india especially you know uh, the men are slightly smaller than the caucasian men so uh, so overall i think the systems have been designed with one race one you know one yeah. gender in mind not not keeping in in mind the other um and i think that's one aspect of feminine energy that's more inclusive so when we have more feminine energy in leadership positions uh, whether it's a man at the helm or it's a woman if you're using your feminine intelligence as karen downs puts it you are going to be more inclusive you are going to take care of listening to the people who are not just left brain but the right brain people as well you know you're going to listen more and talk less because the feminine energy needs a little bit of silence you know you need to listen to it it's it's not it's not always going to be in your face you you have to pay attention you have to be a little bit more intuitive uh have a higher eq to hear it and to listen to it so i think overall we've you know not just in social structures of course in social structures because women are expected to be homemakers they're expected to work for free to be you know doing uh, 15 hours of unpaid labor at home and that's considered her job it's considered her duty that she has to do that that's you know she's a woman she's a mother that's what she's supposed to do uh, whether she likes it or she doesn't like it i for instance uh, i'm not very good at cooking and for years for years i used to uh, think of myself as a lesser woman because i wasn't good at cooking and 
it's it's only so many years later that i have accepted that okay i am good at something else maybe you know i may not be so good at cooking and but because that's considered my primary job i'm considered a failure you know because i'm not able to make a good meal when somebody is coming home you know but it's only now when i've grown up and i've kind of accepted myself with all my you know failings and everything i've actually started cooking better now <laughs> so so i think overall it's you know there's there's so many structures and hierarchies that are set in place which begin with certain assumptions that a certain gender is superior or is the default gender and the others are not important or they are supposed to be servile to this one that's where all the problem starts and in a country like india it's the basic problem of even seeing the humanity in women is missing yeah. you know if you see some of the crimes that happen if you see some of the violence the reports they don't even see the woman as a human being so even that basic understanding or education of men that look a, a woman is a human being even that is missing mm-hmm. and that's something that i have been i've been trying to bring up this issue that the problem of gender violence in india is not a women's issue quote unquote it's a men's issue our men are the one who need education they are the ones who need training they are the ones who need rehabilitation they need to be taught that women are human beings too and they need to be taught that from the time that they are born and the fact that there are there is even one rape in india a day where actually there are actually many hundreds but even one is too much right because it means that that one person that one male did not think of this one woman as an equal human being mm-hmm. So it it's that's how endemic the problem is. And how do you think it began in India? Do you think it's influence from the west and corporate culture or do you think do you think there was a time where men and women lived more equally and harmoniously and worshiped the various aspects of the goddess and the male gods? Do you think there was a time of harmony and if so, what do you think shifted it? Yeah, that's that's an interesting um point and that's something that i i have thought about so uh, in indian mythology we we talk about yuga so that's ages right. one age is like millions of years you know so it's uh, it's unimaginable uh, so they do say that there was a time when everything was in harmony and when you know uh, everything was working the way it was supposed to work as per nature but by the time our scriptures were written which is they were written down well they were passed on orally before that but by the time somebody decided to write them down and put them in the written record it was 500 bc and by then we already had patriarchal structures in place right. so it can only be a kind of a guess that there would have been a time when we had a more equal society though i mean the historians would probably be better able to answer a question like that but i think by the time our written uh, scriptures which are today considered hindu scriptures uh, though hinduism is is actually a it's it's not a it's not a religion it's a way of life but it's been kind of uh, put into the form of an organized religion for the sake of modern convenience and for the sake of you know having it in certain slots which is probably again probably started after colonialism because they needed to slot us into something right so they slotted us into hinduism but it's actually a very fluid uh, way of life which varies from region to region so 
from North India to South India, you'll have different kinds of Hinduism even. You'll have different systems. You have matriarchal societies, patriarchal societies. So you have everything. Uh, there's a whole lot of diversity in the way Hinduism is practiced. We have different, as you know, we have millions of gods and you can choose the one you like and you can just say, okay, why? You know, I get my dibs on that one and I'm, that's going to be my god. And that's okay. That's considered very normal and it's considered how it's supposed to be. You choose your god and you stick to that person and to that deity and uh, that that becomes your guiding angel, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's an accepted thing. But when it comes to the way systemic patriarchy set in, I think it had already set in before the scriptures were written because there are references uh, in the scriptures in the Mahabharata and Ramayana which are our biggest epics of women being raped and of women having to pay for the consequences of men's actions uh, and it infuriates me because these are the things that are being taught right. to every single person who is born in India you know the scriptures you know the stories they are part of your psyche even before you can think you know and then in these scriptures, you're reinforcing these principles of the male being in power and the woman having to pay for his bad, good or bad actions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the women having to, um, to hide and to, uh, you know, they're at the mercy of the men. So I, I don't like that. that. That makes me angry. And I think that this was written at a time when already patriarchal structures were in place. One of the things that really infuriates me from the from the Gita, which is the scripture that I follow, the Bhagavad Gita, is the part in which he tells uh, Lord Krishna is uh, telling um, Arjuna that the story is that they're in the middle of the field and Arjuna is having second thoughts about going to war because he's going to be fighting his own cousins and his own uncles whom he holds very dearly. But Krishna is telling him, you have to fight the good fight and you have to do your karma. You have to do your duty. And your duty is to be a warrior at this moment. So go and do it. Like, don't be scared about the consequences. Leave the consequences to God. And so in one of the lines that he's telling Arjuna, he says, everybody achieves, can achieve God, including the women and the lower castes. And that line just infuriates me every time I read it. And I have this mental argument with God in my head that how could you put that down? Like, how could you write it? I mean, it might have been a custom of the time that the women and the lower castes were not treated well until today they are not because you put it down, because you wrote it down. You should have had an egalitarian uh, speech. Like, you know, if you were saying something, you should have been politically correct. And so, so, and, and I think that those lines, you know, they get ingrained in the psyches of people. So though God is saying that even women and the lower castes are capable of enlightenment, I think the minute you say that, you're reinforcing that there's something wrong with women and lower caste people, right? Right, right, right. And that the men and the upper caste men are the default. Right. So that's why I have a lot of problem with, with my own religion. And though it's, though it's something that I draw a lot of spiritual energy from, I, I take all my life lessons from the Gita. I have a problem with Krishna for saying these things. And, you know, so it's something that I, I challenge uh, at a spiritual level within myself. And I, I've tried to fight it for many years. I've had a lot of anger in me uh, against the system. Uh, And I've had a lot of anger why women are not considered equal to men. And after a point, you know, even in Buddhism, in the earlier forms of Buddhism, they they dictated that the woman does not attain enlightenment until she first becomes a man. Right. They say that there's a gospel, the gospel of Thomas, it says that too. 
something yeah. like that. So, but but for me, I used to get furious about it, and I used to think, why is why is that so? You know, because the the current form of Buddhism that I practice, which is the Mahayana Buddhism. that says that everybody is capable of enlightenment and it's a more equal and it's a more secular religion but why did the older version say that you know i used to get very furious about it and then after a lot of introspection i i realized that it's being a woman naturally and automatically makes you more connected with your body more connected with the people in your life the loves in your life whether they are your you know blood relatives or your partner or your children or your siblings there is a certain physical pull and even if for instance my children are on the other side of the world as a mother i have physical reactions if they are unwell or if something is wrong you know i will be anxious i will not be able to sleep despite all my meditation and everything so after a point i realized to just let go and to accept the fact that as a woman my primal needs my body my emotions feel things differently and there's no point in trying to negate this aspect of myself and to think i can be detached i can become a buddha i can leave my family and go in the forest and just become a buddha and you know become enlightened one i don't think a woman could do that you know i think the way we are designed we have a lot more responsibility a lot more sense of love a lot more a lot more sense of uh, what can i say holding the nature the world in our hands and i think it's very 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 few and rare women who would be able to just cut off everything cut off their blood relations cut off their children and just take off and say oh look you know i'm going to become the buddha so i think i have accepted that the, that when the time comes perhaps uh, i would be be able to achieve that level of detachment but until that happens i'm going to enjoy and revel being a woman i'm going to enjoy being this embodiment of love uh, this embodiment of caring and yes this embodiment of protective instinct mm-hmm. even if it comes with fire even if it comes with anger sometimes yeah but to just allow all these aspects of the feminine energy to go through me it's also to embrace humanness deeply i think that's part of the ro- the role of the feminine on this planet in whatever body it's to embrace the horizontal the earth the humanness the fact that this planet that we're on with all its imperfections the body with all of its you know it's it's it won't survive forever it's just flesh and blood and it will you know ashes to ashes it will turn to dust there's something also so perfect about it versus this need to constantly try to purify it purify it purify it and i do think we there's a space for healing healing our ancestral lines healing the karma and the energy of the earth and yet embracing the perfection of who we are right now with all of it i feel like that's part of this next wave of feminism actually like more of the spiritual feminism that's like oh okay we have proven like the story you said like we can do what men can do we can survive in the system but at what cost and we can try to attain this version of the masculine god of ascending out of our bodies but at what cost and is that a cost that's worth it and and should we actually 
you know, deepen into our who we are, into our hearts, into being embodied on this planet right now and create here and now heaven on earth, you know. And it's so important, the work that you're doing, you know, healing women. I think after centuries of oppression and suppressing this aspect of themselves, I think there is a lot of healing in order. And I think there's a lot of suppressed, you know, we were talking about rage. That rage is there in both men and women because this aspect of them has been suppressed for such a long time. This human aspect, you know, this being in touch with each other and with nature and with the spiritual energy. And I completely agree with you that the next generation of feminism is going to be more inclusive. It's going to be more about spiritual, uh, you know, uh, evolution. Uh, we've, we've achieved the legal rights, you know, we've achieved the rights to vote. We've achieved it on the physical and the outwardly level. Now the movement needs to go within. And, and I think it will start from homes. And in a country like ours, I think it has to start with, you know, with the men and the boys. They have to be allowed to explore the feminine side of them. They have to be allowed to see the feminine and to see love and empathy and caring as positive emotions, not as weak emotions. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of, there needs to be a shift from looking outward to looking inward. And, you know, patriarchy has used the tools of suppression. It has used hatred. It has used violence. I think when the feminine energy rises, it will use the opposite tools. It will use inclusivity, it will use love, it will use nurturing and caring to allow each person to express themselves to their highest potential and you know, create that space where everybody is unafraid of being who they are uh, rather than trying to fit into a certain mold. Uh, so I think that when the feminine energy rises, I think that will be the kind of uh, you know, that's the kind of shift that we'll start seeing. Yeah, I agree too. And there's this tricky paradox of the rage, you know, because there's been, yeah. the rage is like this propelling force that's like, I have to fix this. I have to stop this. But it has to be almost like met with our own love and acceptance of ourselves, I think, to kind of temper the fire so that we destroy the right things not the confidence and livelihoods and well-being of men, you know, and, and really actually just learn to get really precise and clear about what we're destroying and what we're encouraging to be reborn. I think it's, uh, you know, it's like when the pendulum swings. Yeah. So it goes from one extreme to the other extreme a few times until it finally comes to the balance and stillness in the center. So I think because for so many centuries we've been on one side of the pendulum, you know, it's going to swing to the other side and there'll probably be a little bit of conflict. There will be a bit of rage. There will be a little bit of outpouring of a lot of pent up emotions. But eventually, it will come to a kind of a middle point where both the aspects will be in the balance. So the, the women in, in the West have gone a few steps further because they've achieved a certain kind of social equality that is still lacking uh, for a lot of us uh, in, in South Asia. So that is why I, I, I don't mind being the agent of driving a certain kind of energy uh, which you which can be constructed as anger or rage because I think that is required for that certain push uh, to even start the pendulum moving you know you need to have that energy otherwise everybody is too afraid to take that step 
you know to get out of that system so we need a little bit of a push uh, to start it and then when you get out of the system then you're able to look back and say okay so i have that in me how do i use it like you said how do i use it for something good yeah, you know yeah it's like when you're breaking up with a man that's abusive you have to actually, yes. to get out of that dynamic, you have to be pissed off. You have to be able yes, to burn absolutely. the whole thing down because otherwise it's too scary or too shameful or all those things. So I understand that momentum and the need for that. It's just really beautiful to talk to you. You're definitely someone who I'm enjoying having these conversations with and learning more about Indian culture and what's taking place. And I feel so much excitement for the work that you're doing and uh, the growth that's taking place in India. Really all beings, wherever they fall on that spectrum. And I have two more questions, but I want to go back to the yugas, right? So the little I know about the yugas is we've been in Kali Yuga right? Yes. And so we've been in that like descending, de-evolution kind of just like we went through the dark ages and now we're kind of coming back up. And this is why yeah. there's this like revelation of energy and spirit again. And all of these movements for equality are happening. And I want to talk to you about that in your scriptures and in the belief or in Hindu scriptures. What do you think these next 200, 300, 400 years could look like in relationship to the feminine rising and what's taking place? What do you envision? Yeah, so so we have these um, this concept of the yugas in which the first one was everything was perfect and everything was in harmony, everything was beautiful. And then came the, the second one, the Dwapar Yuga, in which... Uh, you know, things started to shift. So there was both good and bad. And now we're in the Kalyug, which is uh, everything is uh, in a state of degeneration. To be honest, I personally take these things in a more symbolic sense uh, and not so much as, as, you know, we're in a state of degeneration because, well, to be honest, I think the state of degeneration has been the best age to be a woman. You know, I would not want to go back in time uh, to the medieval ages to be a woman. I would rather be a woman today because I think, you know, it's just getting better and better to be a woman. It's been worse before. I think they have like a kind of a symbolic meaning. I, I personally am kind of person who likes to live in the moment uh, since I practice Buddhism. You know, the present is all there is. You know, you cannot change the past. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. The present is your only access and pathway to eternity. The present moment is all that you have. So whether we're born in the first uh, yuga or in the second one or in the third one, I think they're all good. I think just make the most of what you have right now. And like Krishna says, leave the results to God. You know, do what you can do. Do your karma right now. Do the best that you can do in this moment. Do what you have to do in this moment. Follow your calling. And then just leave the results uh, to God. So, in fact, in, in Buddhism, they tell you your biggest contribution to humanity is to be happy. So, if you're happy, you've done your bit. You know, <laughs> because it's so difficult to be happy. <laughs> you know, it takes years to reach a level where you can say that I'm happy no matter what's happening in my life. Mm. I'm happy, you know. Right. Right. So, so that's the aim. Well, that leads perfectly into our final question. So if you could be a conduit, a vassal for the goddess herself, any aspect of the goddess to speak through you, 
What would you say to us right now? I would say embrace all sides of you. Embrace, be open, you know, embrace it all. Let it all come. There are so many sides of you that you, you don't even know it exists. It's only when you allow it to come through you and then you realize that, oh, I am this too. I am this too. I am this too. And then at one point, you reach in your deepest knowing, I am that. So we have that, we have that saying, that Tvama say, you are that. You, you are it. You are everything, you know. So you are good, you are bad, you are evil, you are kind, you are gentle, you know, you have everything in you. And I think the biggest, at the end of it, what you realize is that it all boils down to love. And I think love, you know, when people talk about heaven, I think that's what heaven must be. When you can touch and feel love in every cell of your body, and it doesn't matter who or what is standing in front of you, all that's coming out of you is that wave of love. You know, and I think that's heaven. Mm. And you can only reach it if you accept all the sides of you. If you want to accept only one side of you and you don't want to accept the other side of you, then that's not love. Yeah, you, you live know? in duality. Yeah, you have to just accept it all. Mm. That was so beautiful. Thank you so much, Ekta, for sharing your wisdom and your story and your courage. It's been an honor to have you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you do. I think it's, it's absolutely amazing that you've managed to bring together so many women, hundreds of women from around the world. And, you know, you, it, it's a wonderful cause that you're uh, taking forward. And thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. If you would like to learn more about Ekta, support her work, go to ishi.in. That is E-S-H-E dot I-N. And if you'd like to learn more about the Global Sisterhood, you can follow us on Instagram at the Global Sisterhood, or you can tune in to one of our programs. Just go to globalsisterhood.org. It is such a privilege and such an honor to speak with all these amazing women and to continue to speak with you. If you would like to join one of our circles or programs and dive in deeper and have these conversations yourself with us, we would love to invite you in deeper, sister. So just go to globalsisterhood.org to learn more. Okay, talk to you next time.